0: Listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. be continuing our series in in Luke. And uh, as I read a few minutes ago, we are in Luke chapter 16, uh, looking at verses 19 through 31. So this story reminded me of of a movie I saw as a kid. Not necessarily recommending this movie to anybody. Uh, but the movie Scrooge, I don't know if anybody in here has ever seen that one. It's an old old uh, Bill Murray classic, uh, but it, it reminded me of that. And then, and, and also the, the story that that's based on, which I read a couple of years ago, the Charles Dickens classic, Christmas Carol, uh, which is a, a good story. And both of these stories, it, it tells the story of uh, this man, Ebenezer Scrooge, and how he was fixated on wealth, kind of like the man that we see in this story. He lived his life as kind of a miser, worried about himself, worried about his own fortunes, worried about his own income. And then he was fortunate enough to have these, these ghosts come and visit him, these people from beyond the grave, the ghost of Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future, these people who, would, who came and showed to him how things really were. And they were able to sort of get through to him and change him. And he has this miraculous turnaround and he's able to, to become a different person because of this. And the truth of the matter is that this is a common story throughout literature and going all the way back before Jesus' time. This is not the first time that this story had been told. If you go back into some of the, the ancient Jewish literature, now some of the writings of some of the Pharisees and some of the Jewish groups at this time, there's similar stories that are being told all over the place at this time. Going back several hundred years before Jesus um, about, you know, people visiting from beyond the grave to speak to mortals, and and they always sort of end this same kind of way. If somebody's able to come and, and speak to them, you know, there, there's the, the, the wealth issue where it's like, oh, the person who's not rewarded on earth is going to receive richly in heaven. Uh, and then there's the, the person who's able to sort of hear from beyond the grave and change their ways in life moving forward. It's a, it's a common idea. And I think we can relate to that because we think, man, if I was visited by someone from beyond the grave, like, then I would really know. Like, then, then I would really understand and, and I, I could have this confidence in, in, in what this person said. Uh, but the reality is that what Jesus does here is flip this completely around and say it doesn't even matter if someone from beyond the grave came and spoke to you, it still wouldn't make you into the person that you think you would be otherwise. It still wouldn't have this kind of effect on you. And we're going we're to gonna kind of understand why. So the point that we're going to be Uh, Looking at today, we're going to look at a couple of sort of side issues that come along from this passage. But there's the, the key idea, the main point that we're going to see is the kingdom of God isn't attained by wealth or by religion. But it's a present reality given to those who don't deserve it and received by faith in God and his word. And so this rich man in this passage uh, who's unnamed, likely a, a Sadducee because of the way that we see him living his life, likely having no thought for the afterlife, for the future, for resurrection. So he's living his life, seeing himself as a son of Abraham, uh, and yet living in this sort of hedonistic lifestyle focused on his earthly pleasure. And this judgment that he received is not a religious judgment on the rich man. It was on his heart problem. And his heart problem, the lack of love that he has for God, the lack of faith and trust that he has in the Word of God, is going to impact the way that he lives his life in the here and now. The way that we live our lives shows what we really believe. We're not judged based off of uh, we 're not we 're not given grace and mercy based off of our actions, and yet we can see a lot of times what we truly believe by the way that we act by the way that we live our lives and that that becomes abundantly clear in the life of this rich man he walks past Lazarus each and every day and he knows him by name we even see that in in the, in the afterlife, he calls him by name and says, hey, send him over here to help bring me some of this relief. So it's someone he knows, and yet he walks past him every single day and literally sees these wild dogs like licking on him, on these sores, and, and reaches out with no compassion for this person. And so, so he obviously has not been trusting in God. And regardless of the fact that he considers himself a, a child of Abraham, has not listened to Moses or to the prophets in any kind of way that would drive him to change his style of life. Notice, even when he is in torment, his attitude doesn't change. First and foremost, he even sees beyond this chasm that's separating from him from God, and, and is he crying out even then in repentance God, give me mercy, forgive me for my sins, forgive me for my actions, forgive me for the way that I live my life, forgive me for how I treated Lazarus. No, it's God, I'm in a lot of pain here. Send that guy, who's really not of any consequence, down here to help relieve my pain. You know, it's still about him. And and I think, again, that there's a lot of us who are like, man, when, when people get to the afterlife one day, what if they repent? What if they turn to God? What if they want God? Like, what if they... Ask forgiveness for their sins. And the reality is, there's not going to be that same thing when, when in the afterlife one day either. The, it, people are who people are apart from Christ. And so when they're in the afterlife one day, it's not going to change their character. It's not going to change their hearts. It's not going to change who they are. You're not going to see people falling on their face before God and wanting to worship Him and turn to Him in the afterlife either, just like we see in this life of this rich man. We also want to see this parable in connection with the other parables that Jesus has been giving. This this parable is connected to like the parable, the the couple parables that come before it. It, And going all the way back even to the the parable of the prodigal son, what we have here is very much a older brother parable. We see in the rich man an older brother, one who who thought that his wealth or his actions or who he was was going to earn him the father's favor and who has no thought or no concern other than why is this why is this uh this sinful uh obviously cursed person anywhere around me i'm not going to reach out with compassion and generosity towards this younger brother the rich man doesn't get the poor and despised and messed up lazarus and finally, we see that, that Jesus, like usual, is going to twist the ending in this parable, this traditional folks, instead of having an apparition that would you know, speak to someone and change their hearts and change their minds, or even instead of focusing on the rewards that Lazarus is going to re- receive. We don't even, he doesn't talk about Lazarus' character that much. I mean, we can kind of draw some conclusions about this, but he, he's twisting around to say that that at the end of the day, even if someone rose from the dead, it's not going to change the heart of a hard-hearted person. And we can look back in, at, at the history of Israel and see that very clearly. We see someone like Pharaoh. How many more miracles, how much more divine intervention does someone have to have to have their heart softened towards God and the things of God? It, it doesn't matter how many plagues. It doesn't matter how much divine intervention and how many miraculous things happen. His heart is hard towards God. It's not going to change it. We see Saul, who literally has a ghost from the dead appear to him in the the person of Samuel, and yet it doesn't change or soften his heart towards the Lord. It doesn't change him in any noticeable way. You see, uh, in your own life, I look back at my own life and I see how many times God has intervened, how many times God has moved, how many times God has has given me grace and mercy in spite of my own sin, in spite of myself, and and, and it didn't give me what I deserve uh, because of my own actions. And yet, how easy is it for me on a daily basis not to trust him, not to have my faith in him? And so before we we deal in detail with this main point. I do want to hit a couple of sort of side issues that come from, from this passage. Okay, so the, the first side issue that comes from this passage is one of sort of cosmology, it's sort of uh, the design of heaven and hell and the world. And, and so we, we see this picture, this sort of rare picture of, uh, you know, behind the curtain in this passage, which a lot of people get sort of, of caught up in. And, and, and it's understandable. You know, we don't have a lot of really clear pictures of what the afterlife looks like, of what heaven and hell look like, about how that's kind of the spiritual world is sort of built. Um, And so so we see a little bit of that here. And, And in fact... A lot of times when people ask me about that, this is the passage that I sort of come back to. and say, well, look look at this here. Uh, and we can, we can point to the, to the to, you know, people are like, well, what is Hades? What is, what is he talking about Hades here? Is that like a sort of a misprint or what is, what, is, what is all of that? So we can see a couple of things from this and without getting too much into the weeds on it. We can see um, sort of the, the, the mindset of the people at this time. Uh, you know, especially in the Old Testament, we don't have a lot of talk about what the afterlife is going to be. A lot of this is taken on faith. We see in David, just like I know I'm going to go down to the pit, and He's going to redeem me. Like that's really the kind of the extent of the hope that people in the Old Testament have for what God's going to do with the afterlife. And we see here again the, the the views of the ancient Israelites were very very similar to what we might see as like the ancient Greeks. Like there's this place of the dead. Uh, and after that, people go there, and, and then there were some disagreements as to what that looked like and, and what that might be. That's why we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees, one of the main disagreements between them. You have the Pharisees who do sort of believe in a resurrection from the dead, the Sadducees, who likely this rich man was when he was on earth, who, who are like, there is no resurrection from the dead. You die, you're gone, that's the end of it. And so, so you sort of have these different views and these different beliefs, but there's not really like a well-developed Cosmology, And so I would caution you, there's definitely, I don't think Jesus is, you know, this, this is a story that had been told by a lot of different people. I don't think Jesus would give wrong information. So I definitely think there is some stuff we can learn about heaven and hell and those kinds of things from this passage. But it's not really the point that Jesus is trying to make here. But there are a couple of things we could draw from that. Like what would somebody in hell, what would somebody experiencing judgment want to say to, to their loved ones here, now? You know, it's something we could consider and think about. Uh, what would you say to others when you've died and gone on? What, what would you want to come back and say to your loved ones? What would you want to come back and say to your coworkers? What would you want to come back and say to other people? What we can definitely see from this passage is the reality of hell and judgment. It's a very real thing. And, and at times we struggle with that. I, I can tell you, I think there's this, this like compassionate side where it's like, I can't imagine a loving God sending people to hell, sending people to judgment. We, we struggle with this. And I think we struggle with the reality of hell and judgment because we fail to grasp two things, the perfection of God and the sinfulness of sin. Okay, so we don't truly grasp how perfect, infinitely holy God is. I think a lot of times we tend to think of God as as just kind of a good human, a good version of ourselves. You know, we think of Jesus as, as, you know, almost like like a Mother Teresa type, like a good, really good person. We don't grasp what it means to have no stain of sin in him at all, to be infinitely holy and perfect in every single way. And so because we don't grasp that perfection of God, we we don't grasp the sinfulness of sin either. I think as sinful people, it's very easy for us to sort of excuse sin in others. It's even though we've been forgiven by, by God, and, and we've experienced His grace and mercy. We know that Jesus had to die on the cross for our sins. We, we looked at other people and we're like, ah, yeah, but they're not that bad. You know, their sin is not that bad. And we don't see that at the end of the day, the root of sin is the lack of love and trust in the infinitely good creator of the universe. And unless we can grasp that, in some degree, we'll never grasp the actual sinfulness of sin. And so it's hard for us to latch on to, to the reality of, of hell and the reality of judgment because we don't really grasp the goodness of God and the sinfulness of sin. And so we, we really need to kind of t- to understand that. And so there are a couple things that we can get from this here. And that is uh, we need to be aware of the fact that there is a real heaven and hell. There is a real judgment. We're like, yeah, but Jesus didn't focus on. On that as much. No, actually, Jesus spoke about it more than anyone else in the Scriptures. Okay, so, so even Jesus, the loving, compassionate, it, I think because of the love and compassion that he had, he speaks about it more than anyone else. And so that, that should be something that drives us. It's not necessarily nice not to tell someone, you know, about this. I've said this one plenty of times before, but when my, my son was reaching out to touch the, the eye of the stove, you know, when he was a little kid, it's not nice for me to be like, well, I don't want to yell at him, you know, let me see what happens. Uh, that's not really nice, okay? In that moment, it's like I'm going to do whatever it takes to stop him from touching that thing, okay? So, so this is what we see in Jesus, and this should also be impacting us. So that's side issue number one. The side issue, the second side issue that we see uh, here in this passage is sort of the evil of wealth. Okay? It's not something we can just sort of overlook in this passage because it's not convenient or not nice. I don't think it's the point, the main idea of the passage. But it's not something we can overlook. It's definitely a part of this story. So the evils of wealth. So a couple things for us to think about. Do we recognize that everything that we have is God's and we're just stewards of the good gifts that he's given us? Whether that's money, whether that's time, our resources, the talents that he's given us. We're stewards of those things we see again and again in in the parables of Jesus the foolishness of sort of stockpiling wealth and trusting in wealth and loving money, as opposed to using those things out of generosity towards other people. And so how foolish is it that this rich man has the opportunity to use this wealth to relieve the suffering of someone who's sitting on the street outside of his house, obviously suffering? He knows this man by name, and yet... He's using it to buy himself another, another little outfit, another little thing that he's not going to have in just a couple of days. And he's gone, and all this stuff is gone, and he doesn't have any of that stuff anymore. And he could have used this to bless and give to others, and yet he doesn't use that opportunity. Everything that we have, every single one of us is going to die. It's another one of the little side points of this passage. Rich, poor, famous, not famous. Well-known, not well-known, nice, bad. This is a reality that every single one of us share and not many of us want to think about. We all have this kind of unwritten rule not to talk about it, not to think about it. And yet, what a, what a reminder for us that we have a set amount of time. We've used it a lot of it already. We have a set amount of talents that he's given us. We have resources that he's given us that we're called to be stewards of. And they're going to be gone. We're not going to have those things when we die. They're going to be left either to our descendants or someone else, and they're going to lose them. Who knows what's going to happen to them, but it's going to be gone. We have this opportunity, this amount of time that we have to use these things in the way that God would would have us use them, in the way that Jesus would have used these things. We see examples in the early church of, of people having their things in common and caring for one another, caring for the needs of the people around them. And it's something that, should, that we should be driven to do as well, especially in our culture today. I think the love of money and taking our pride and our contentment and trusting in, in things going well. I mean, I can, I can tell you how many times when, when my bank account's good, I'm feeling pretty good. When things are getting a little tight, I'm a little stressed. I'm a little, you know, things aren't going that well. So much of it is driven by that money. We have to constantly be questioning and, and, and challenging and asking ourselves, If we're driven by the love of money or if we're being stewards of the gifts and the resources that God has given us. The point of this passage is not wealth versus poverty, but it's definitely something that we have to consider here. And money isn't evil. okay? Money in and of itself is not evil. Money is a tool like anything else. Any secondary thing can become an idol. It just happens that money is very easily an idol for us. Uh, loving money is evil and not using money as God intends with generosity and compassion to other people is evil. Those are, those are where the sin comes in. And we see that very clearly in the life of Lazarus. But at the end of the day, what the, these are is they're symptoms of a deeper reality in Lazarus. And that's what really the point of this parable is at the end of the day. It's not, it's not, about, uh, it's not primarily about Um, heaven and hell. It's not primarily about uh, riches or the the love of money. At the end of the day, Lazarus does not trust God. He does not trust God's Word, and that's going to impact the way that he is in the world in the here and now. So the point for this passage is for us to understand that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is not attained by wealth or religion. It's not just about some distant, far-off future. It's a present reality. It's a gift that we don't deserve, and it's received by faith and trust in God and his word. And let's break this down a little bit more as we look at this, this passage. So we see in this passage that it's not attained by wealth. The rich man in this passage is not punished because he's a rich man. Okay, that's to to miss the point of the passage. There are rich people who are followers and disciples of Jesus in the New Testament. Okay, there are rich people who support Paul. There are rich people who who give Jesus a tomb to be buried in. There are rich people who are disciples of Jesus. Okay, but Jesus himself says that it's, it's harder to get a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich man into the kingdom of God. Now he's speaking, yes, hyperbolically. He's speaking to to make that point that wealth is dangerous, okay? But he also says in there that all things are possible through God. So ultimately it's about that heart with God. It's impossible for a rich man apart from Jesus to find himself in heaven one day. It's impossible for a rich man apart from the the sacrifice of Jesus and the gospel to, to earn their salvation through any way that they use their wealth. Uh, So so he's he's not, this is not attained, this kingdom of God is not attained by wealth. The rich man is not punished for his wealth. He actually gets what he wants. He gets what he wants in life. He gets secondary pleasures. He doesn't want God. The rich man in this story doesn't want God. and, And he doesn't get him. This separation, this chasm between the rich man and God does not begin when he dies. The chasm is there in life. Okay? That's the same for, for anyone who is not a believer in Jesus. There's this chasm that separates us. It's a spiritual reality in life now that becomes evident to the rich man after he dies. That this separation exists. And again, see the character of the rich man. He's not saying, God, close this chasm. Let me be with you. That's not the point for him. The point is still... What, can, what, what good things can I get? What pleasure and relief can I get here and now? The rich man gets what he wants with his wealth, and that's the, the pleasures that wealth can give. It's not nothing, but definitely not what's going to be satisfying him for eternity. It's also not attained by religion. Like I said, most likely a Sadducee. He's a son of Abraham. He calls Abraham father. So there's some identifying things here. Where he's like, man, I, I'm, I'm a religious person. Wealth was one of the things that for many of the people in their day, culturally, marked them as blessed by God. So he, he probably thought, oh, Yeah, I'm blessed by God. I'm, I'm wealthy. Not like Lazarus. You know, Lazarus is definitely cursed. God definitely doesn't love him. And so there are a lot of external things that made him feel like he's pretty good. You know, God obviously is cool with him because he, he's given him all these, this money and these blessings and these resources in life. How much of the time are we ourselves driven by these external things? Like other people see me as religious. Other people see me as godly. Other people see me as holy. So it must be true. You know, as long as I'm fooling everybody else. And yet God sees our hearts. God sees the reality. If we we see Lazarus on a street today, most of us would go the same way. What did that person do to end up where they are? Walk on the other side of the street from that person because I'm afraid I'm going to catch whatever whatever they have. You know I don't want that rubbing off on me. And yet we see not because it says anything that Lazarus did, but we see because of the result that obviously Lazarus, in spite of his suffering, in spite of the fa- the pain of his present reality, was at peace with God in his heart. Was more faithful than this rich man in his heart. Trusted in God in his heart. So it was a very different reality. Internally than externally. Yet so much of the times we're trying to portray an image of ourselves as spiritual, and we probably spend a lot more efforts portraying ourselves as religious and spiritual than we do actually pursuing Jesus. So we, we, as long as people think we're godly, as long as we have the illusion together of being that perfect family or that perfect life group leader or that perfect DNA member or church member, as long as people think I have it all together. They're not going to see the reality. The reality is not that important. But the truth for all of us is probably a little bit different than that. The other other trap we fall into sometimes is in thinking that it's a distant future that we have to worry about. But the kingdom of God is a present reality. That's one of the constant messages that Jesus is, is, is proclaiming and that Luke is making very clear is that the kingdom of God is constantly pressing itself into the here and the now. So we see the the kingdom of God in the life of this man, Lazarus, and we see the lack of that reality in the life of this rich man. So at the end of the day, the rich man's wealth didn't make him ready, nor did his religion. He wasn't ready for the future because he didn't have a heart after God now. Because the kingdom wasn't a reality in his life here and now because he wasn't pursuing Jesus because the priorities of Jesus weren't there because he had been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ in the here and now and so it wasn't a reality for him here or in the future. The kingdom of God is present now and should affect us and impact us now. That Think about that gulf again in verse 26. If you have not been saved by Jesus, if your heart has not been made alive with Christ, then that gulf is still an ever-present reality for you. You're not with God here and now. And that lack of being with God is going to impact who we are and how we live our lives every single day. So if you have been transformed by Jesus, if you're Heart of stone has been taken out and replaced by a heart of flesh. If then you're with God here and now, and that kingdom is going to come out in how you live your life each and every day. Not at the point of perfection. We're not saying that there's, there's no sin that still needs to be repented of. There's no growth that still needs to be happening. But that is going to be a reality in your life each and every day. The kingdom of God is forcefully advancing, Jesus says, and f- people... People lay hold of it by force. In Jesus' parables, people are held accountable for this future hope that they have. Uh, they are held accountable for for their lives here and now, for their faith, for their belief here and now, and it's going to change and transform them in the here and now. But the other thing that we have to know is that this is a gift, not our own works. It's a gift that we don't deserve. And it's not something that we do on our own apart from him. How many of us claim religion, put on the trappings of religion, go through the motions of religion, show it to others, and genuinely think that God owes us something because of our religious practice, our religious observance. But the rich man is not saved by his religious belief, and we're not going to be saved by those things either. We see really clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, That this is a gift. It's a a passage that most of you are familiar with. But Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast for his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We don't see in Lazarus, it's, it's not like they're saying, look at Lazarus, what a great example of a godly man who are in God's favor. We see nothing but the mercy and grace of God in the life of Lazarus. Now, most of us would look at somebody like Lazarus in the here and now and think, where is God in this situation? And yet God is present in him, and God's present with him for eternity. The grace and mercy of God is there. We have such a short-sighted view of spiritual realities. We think, I'm happy today. My needs are met today. I have pleasure today. Things are good. And yet we don't see how close eternity is. We use this time on wasteful things that don't really matter, and yet we're so close. Even, even if we're, you know, one or two years old, even children in the, in the back, who even in babies in the baby room, we're so close to eternity. And we don't know when it will be, and we only have this allotted amount of time that we have, and then this is going to be a reality, the eternity, the judgment. We have this short amount of time. And, and God, in His grace and His mercy, has, has for those of us who are believers has saved us has changed us who's given us a heart of faith and we're called then to allow that to become a reality in our lives and to share that with others in the here and now I, I've been fortunate enough on Wednesday nights to be a part of, of uh, what's going on with our our youth uh, and our youth have been going through this this three three circles this evangelism training and it's just been so cool to see them practice talking about things that matter with other people seeing them seeing them talk about spiritual realities as as 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 year olds to talk about how God has changed their hearts and to talk about how he's transformed them and to talk about how you know he can transform someone else and and to talk about the goodness and the glory of God in the gospel. What an incredible thing to be able to do as a 12, 13, 14-year-old. And, and yet they talk about, we had some conversations in there about the obstacles to that. Just fear or, or lack of practice. Or, and yet we see very clearly the urgency of the need to share that with others. How many of us, myself included, It's just much easier not to worry about on a regular basis. And I think it's because at the end of the day, this story that we see in Luke, this parable, it's just not very real to us. It's just not very real to us. And then we get to that point where he says, well, somebody came and told me from beyond the grave. And what he says is, no, even if somebody rose from the dead, it still wouldn't change how you're doing. Because at the end of the day, this is what Jesus pointed to, he's going to rise from the dead. And it's still, apart from the grace of God in people's lives, it's not going to change the Pharisees. They're still going to doubt. They're still going to not believe. It's still not going to change things for them. Because at the end of the day, people are sinful apart from the divine intervention of God changing their hearts. Removing that heart of stone and putting it in a heart of flesh like we see in Ephesians. What a gift of God. We see kind of a, a backwards view of what happens with Lazarus in this picture grace of God taking a heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh and, and delivering him to the right hand of God once and for all. And so this gift is received by faith and trust, genuine belief in God and his word. And so that's where that, that kingdom starts to come out in our lives in practical ways, okay? So we, what, what does he say to, to the rich man? He says, you had Moses and the prophets your whole life and you didn't believe. It doesn't matter if a ghost shows up and appears to them. It's, you're still not going to believe. He says, uh, this is the same for all of us. We have the revealed word of God. You know, there's, there's always, you know, in teaching youth throughout the passage, there's always been someone that, man, I wish God would speak to me like he did to the people in the Old Testament. Why doesn't God do that anymore? Why doesn't he speak to me like he did to Moses? Why doesn't he speak to me like he did to Abraham? Where I could hear this audible voice and God comes down and says, hey, this is what you're supposed to do. If he would just do that, then I would do it. And I think that we feel that way a lot of times. We're like, God's kind of silent. God's kind of quiet. He doesn't speak down to me and tell me this. One of the things we see from Scripture is like, look, I think Abraham would probably be like, hey, you've got like God's full counsel in like a nice, neatly bound leather book. And it's like the whole story. He's like, you know, I heard like three times, like, do this. Not really any explanation or context, and I just kind of had to do it. And, like, you get the whole story right there. So, like, don't tell me that if you just had him speaking back then, like, you would do what he said. So, again, it's always easier for us to look at what we don't have and what God hasn't done. Because we're sinful human beings, and yet he's got the full counsel of God revealed to us in his word clearly how we're supposed to live, everything necessary for life and godliness revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. And yes, it's very easy for us to be like, eh, I don't really know what God wants for me to do. I don't really know how He wants me to be. I don't really, and it doesn't impact our hearts and our lives. And so we see that this gift is received by faith, trust, and genuine belief in God's Word. Again, it's a gift. It's not something we do. I don't try really hard to trust Him. We pray and ask God to help us to to trust him and his word. We pray and help God to to ask his spirit to change our hearts, to make us like Jesus. We practice doing what the Bible teaches, even when it doesn't seem right or even when it doesn't feel right. Because that's the way that the spirit is then going to move in our hearts and our lives to conform us into the image of his son. This is a life-giving gift. I was also thinking about a, a different movie. I don't normally do like a whole lot of movie things, but for whatever reason, like this one was just kind of bringing up some movies to me. And I was thinking about, again, not one I can really recommend, but Saving Private Ryan. I was thinking, a lot of you may have seen that. And and uh, I was thinking about the, the end of that movie. A couple couple scenes were really sticking out to me in that. You see, like on one hand, you see, for those of you who don't know, basically it's a story like uh, this whole troop gets sent in to go find this guy, Saving Private Ryan. His his brothers had died, and the army's like, we can't let all this lady's kids die, so we're gonna go save this guy. And they lose a lot of other people. A lot of people die to save this guy, Ryan. like Private Ryan. Okay, so so they all go and and do that. They save him at the very end. Okay, and and so this is framed by Private Ryan now many years later visiting the graves of some of those people who died. And he's like an old man. And you see him like run to this grave. And he's like weeping like, I tried to earn it. Like I tried to earn it. Okay? That's one scene. And you see then later on at the end, Tom Hanks' character, the last one who's like dying trying to save Private Ryan. And he's like laying there dying. Private Ryan's over him. He's like, earn this. Like he says to him as like dying words, like earn this. And I'm like, what a curse to put on someone's life. At the end of the day, like, it wouldn't be the reality to know. Like, you're just trying to get through life. Like, you're trying to get through the war. And all of a sudden, you realize all these people came and died to find you to get you out of the war. And the guy's last words you were, earn it. And now you know for the rest of your life, there is no way you can live up to all of these people's deaths for you in this kind of way. So that's why we see this kind of sorrow. Like, I didn't. You see it in his eyes like, I didn't earn all these sacrifices that you made. I was thinking about this in light of this passage because I don't want us to get that idea about what Jesus did for us. He's not up on the cross dying, looking down at his people saying, earn this, you know. This is not what he's saying to us. Okay, so I don't want you to hear from this passage like, don't be like the rich man, earn it like Lazarus. Well, we don't see that Lazarus earned anything in this passage. What we see uh, in the full testimony of Scripture in light of the point that, that Jesus is trying to make in this passage is, is like you can't earn it. You can't earn it by your wealth. You can't earn it by your religion. You can't earn it by your goodness. And so many of the categories that we use to judge ourselves and other people is foolishness. Because at the end of the day, it's a free gift of grace. Received in faith. But that faith is going to change us and transform us and motivate us out of love for God and love for other people. As we become more like Jesus. As that kingdom of God becomes a more pressing reality in our lives. That we're going to then be compelled to tell other people about that free gift that Jesus has won for us. So I want to close on just a last couple of A couple of thoughts, just a couple of practical takeaways for us today as we wrap this up. First of all, I just want to challenge you, consider what has preeminence and first place in your life. Consider what has preeminence and first place in your life. Is Jesus sort of like a piece of the puzzle of your life? Or is he the thing that defines you and everything else in your life? God being a son of Abraham was a little, little tiny piece of this rich man's life. But it, it wasn't number one, and so it didn't impact or influence anything else in his life. It didn't impact where he found his joy. It didn't impact where he found his pleasure. It didn't impact how he treated other people. Whereas if Jesus and his kingdom is number one and preeminent in our life, then it's going to impact the way we find our joy. It's going to impact the way we find our pleasure. It's going to impact the way we treat other people. It's going to impact where we put our hope. So what is preeminent and first place in your life? Second, consider the type of steward that you are. You've been given a set amount of time, of resources, of talent. What type of steward are you? Are you like the shrewd manager in the parable that we just we looked at last week? What type of, of manager, what type of steward of God's resources and the gifts and talents are we? Okay. Third, consider your own religious impulses. Consider your own religious impulses. All of us have some, some sort of religion that we're trying to self-justify with. If I just do these things, then it's going to earn God's favor. If I just learn enough if i just know enough about god if i just use the right kind of bible translation go to the right kind of church say the right kind of things use the right kind of worship method you know whatever whatever the case may be i have these certain religious things that i try to do to make myself godly and holy but at the end of the day a lot of times that's really just a way for us to justify ourselves and ignore the sinful areas of our lives that we don't want to repent of and don't want to submit to him Okay, so consider our own religious impulses and the ways we're trying to justify ourselves in our own minds and our own hearts, and how that affects the way we treat other people around us as well. And then all of this should ultimately drive us to consider the mercy of God that's given to us in Christ. Because when I look at my life honestly, very rarely is He number one in my heart. Very rarely. is my first thought. How can I glorify God, okay? Very rarely am I a good steward of the resources that he's put in my life, if I'm honest, okay? And if you are thinking in your head, oh, he's always first place in my life, and I'm a great steward of all of his resources, then you probably need to consider your own religious impulses, (laughs) because you're probably justifying yourself In a lot of different ways, and so ultimately, these things should see should be things we consider, but they should drive us to the mercy of God given to us in Christ. Because ultimately, as we grow in these things, we're going to see how much more we fall short in them. As we grow in them, we're going to see our own sinfulness and God's own goodness and the amount that we deserve that hell and judgment, and yet we're spared from that, not because of our own goodness, because of the goodness of God and Christ. And it should drive us to tell others about that reality, okay? Do not wait until the afterlife to be like, man, I should have told that person about the goodness of God and Christ. Do not wait to that moment. And so ultimately allow all these things to drive us to the foot of the cross, to allow those things to drive us to the goodness of God in Christ. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, apart from the gospel, we're all self-justifying, sinful people who have no regard or thought for God or for others. But in Christ, we can be the kind of people who show compassion to others, who who God is preeminent in our hearts and our lives, who are good stewards of the things that God has given us. Not perfectly, Uh, but we can grow in those things as God's kingdom is made manifest in our lives and in the life of this church uh, as we strive for those things together.